Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors um, here at New Denver, and um, we're in th- week three of a series called uh, The Psalms of Asaph. And uh, there are a couple of unique things about this series. Um, the first is that it's a shared series. We do this every summer uh, during the month of July. Um, this is a collaborative effort between us and a bunch of other churches that are also doing the same series Uh, here in Denver, and really it's just a sign of our unity together and that no one church is the whole church um, in our city. Um, And it was awesome. Last Sunday, we had Johan Luque from uh, Westside Church International here uh, preaching and sharing, um, and it was great to have him. But there's another unique thing about this series, um, and that's that we're looking at some psalms from the Old Testament, and specifically we're looking at some psalms written by or at least attributed to this guy named Asaph. Now Asaph was interesting. Two weeks ago I shared a little bit about who he was. Um, He was basically a singer-songwriter in ancient Israel. He led the worship um, rituals there in the capital of Jerusalem. So whenever the nation would gather for holidays there at the tabernacle or later the temple, um, he often led those. And then he passed on this legacy. He raised up his sons to continue doing that. And generation after generation, the descendants of Asaph led the worship there in the capital. But maybe he was most well known for writing a group of very powerful songs that continued to be sung and recited over and over and over by the Hebrew people for many, many years to come. And singer-songwriters are a little bit like that, right? I mean, even in our own day, um, somehow they're able to put into words, they're able to put into lyrics things that we're feeling, Um, they're able to tap into certain emotions, Um, sometimes it's an angst, Um, sometimes they're prophetic, uh, their words have this prophetic edge to them. They, they, they provoke or they challenge us in a specific way, um, particularly at important cultural moments, right? Sometimes they see something that's happening in a nation or in a society, and they're responding uh, to that. Think about Bob Dylan, some of you might remember, from the 1960s, right, when Vietnam was happening, and he's saying, how many times... Must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is... Right, the answer is... All right, see? So that's Bob Dylan, probably one of the greatest singer-songwriters ever known. And he, he was speaking to something that was happening, something that was going on in culture at that time. I want to give you a, a more recent example of this, and, and, let's, not re- and let's remember this. Uh, songs are not just um, written and then recorded. They're performed, and they draw people in as they're performed over and over and over, and that's actually how the Psalms worked. It's not as if uh, David or Asaph or the other psalm writers just sat down and wrote a song and then recorded it one day, and that was it, Right? They sung these songs over and over and over, and new generations of people sung these songs. And sometimes even the words took on new meaning. The lyrics took on a new sense of understanding in light of new cultural events or things that were happening in the life of the nation of Israel. It's hard to understand that when you just read words on a screen or you read words in the Bible that there was such a rich history or such something powerful going on. And so I want to just give you an example from modern times of how a song can speak to circumstances that may have been unforeseen. Uh, U2, the band, 
was scheduled to perform at the 2002 halftime Super Bowl, um, Super Bowl halftime show. It was just a few months after 9-11 had taken place. And I want to show you what Bono, the lead singer, said right before they performed. And then I want to show you the song that they ended the entire show with. And it's kind of long, but we're just going to watch the entire song this morning. Um, So take a look. Uh, In light of recent events with the war on terrorism and 9-11, do you feel any added significance performing at this year's Super Bowl? The whole year that we've had here in the United States has been really extraordinary. I mean, you're never the author of your success anyway, but fate really took hold of our album and really changed those songs. I didn't know what they were about anyway. And if a song is, is any good... You never really do know where it could end up.
about a powerful, sacred moment <clears throat> sponsored by E-Trade, by the way. <clears throat> right? I mean, it's the beginning of the song, and Bono invokes the psalms, the words of the psalms themselves, because he knows this is, this is an important moment. Uh, the names of the victims are scrolling behind him, and he sings this song that had been written about basically heaven, about God's kingdom, about going to a place where, where love prevails, where there's no sorrow, there's, there's no pain, but there's this question in the song of how do you build up love when it seems to get getting teared or torn down? And it ends with this, this declaration, and, and the song originally ended with, it's all I can do, but he ended it here with, it's all we can do. It's all we can do to keep holding on to this idea that there is love and there is hope and it will ultimately prevail. Now, um, this is not a, a sermon about a U2 song uh, today. Um, it could be, right? It's a pretty amazing song. But, uh, but I think Asaph was the Bono of his time. He wrote and he performed songs that became powerful prayers that the Hebrew people sang over and over and over. And there were times in the lives of the Hebrew people and in times of their nation where the songs took on new meaning. They were a response or they were a cry or a declaration to something that was happening. And today we're going to read one of those songs. It's Psalm 80. Um, and I picked this psalm uh, over the course of these four weeks. We're looking at four of the psalms that Asaph wrote. And I picked this psalm because I think it embodies one quality of his songwriting that's distinctive in the Hebrew psalm book. Um, it's a quality that we see in some other psalms here and there, but it's significantly more present in the songs that Asaph wrote. And it's a quality that I think we've largely forgotten and neglected today. So I just want to read the entire song for you. I'll mention a few things about it um, along the way, and then I want to lead us into re-embracing this quality that Asaph puts before us. So here's how it starts. Uh, Psalm 80, um, underneath there's a subscript that, that starts with, for the director of music, to the tune of the lilies of the covenant of Asaph, a psalm. In other words, uh, Asaph writes right here in the beginning, um, for all the worship leaders, when you're leading this song, um, these are your instructions. Here's the tune that you play it to. So this was an actual song. We don't know that tune. It's been lost, but here's the tune you play it to. Um, and then he provides the copyright information, right? So that every time you play it, you can send your royalties to Asaph, right? Um, so these are the instructions. And then the song starts with the first verse. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, cherubim were like angels, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Those were three tribes in the nation, and they often just served for the whole nation. Awaken your might, come and save us. And then there's the chorus, and the word chorus isn't actually in the psalm. I just put that up there in brackets, but you'll see that these three lines are repeated three different times in this song. So this is the chorus. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. So we see in the first verse and chorus, this is a song about a, a group of Israelites who are gathering together and they're calling out for God to intervene and to do something in light of the specific moment or the crisis 
that they're facing. And I've actually highlighted the imperative verbs up there. Uh, An imperative verb in, in Hebrew is just like an imperative verb in English. It's a command. Do this. It's not a polite Uh, requests. It's a demand on the person you're speaking to, to take immediate action. And in fact, in Hebrew, the imperative tense is always used in the positive. It always refers to positive action, to do something. If you're commanding or telling somebody to not do something or to refrain from doing something, like the Ten Commandments, right, do not murder, a different verb tense is used. The imperative is always used when you want someone to act in a positive way way. It's all about action. And this song is loaded with the people crying for God to act. Look at the imperatives right here. Hear us. Shine forth. Awaken your might. Come. Restore. And then make your face shine on us. The people are praying. They're, they're pleading. They're actually commanding and demanding God to do something. Now, let's move on to the second verse. Here's what they say next, or they sing. How long, Yahweh, Yahweh was the personal name for God, for the Israelites. How long, Yahweh God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. And then there's the chorus again. They sing, restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. So so now the people are voicing their, their complaints, their questions, their belief that whatever it is they're going through, which must have been bad, we don't know the exact details, but God isn't aware of it or God is somehow ignoring it. God's not doing anything about it, or maybe God's the cause of it. Maybe the reason we're going through this is God is angry at us. And essentially what they're saying is, why are you doing this, God, and how long are we going to keep facing it? But then it goes back to the chorus again, right? There's those imperatives, restore us, make your face shine on us again. And then it moves to the third verse. And the third verse is extra long, and it's almost like a bridge. And that's what bridges do. They're different. The tune changes. The the lyrics change. The whole tone of the song changes. And in this third verse or this third extra long sort of bridge, they look back into history and look at what they sing. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations And you planted it. This refers to the Exodus. They're remembering how God rescued Israel from Egypt. And the nation of Israel is pictured as a vine. This is a metaphor that's used all throughout the Old Testament. God plants this vine in the promised land. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root, and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. So this is hyperbole, exaggeration. The picture is is like Jack's beanstalk, right? It's just, it's taken over everything in the land. God made the nation to flourish so much that its branches reached as far as the sea. This would be the Mediterranean Sea on the west. It shoots as far as the river, the Euphrates River on the east. 
And then we might expect the chorus here, right? That's the pattern, but the bridge keeps going. Why have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass by pick its grapes. Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the field feed on it. And and again, we don't know the specific circumstances at this point, but apparently there's been some significant decline in the nation. Uh, The vine is pictured as withering. The insects and the animals are, are sort of ripping it apart. The nation isn't great anymore. Its enemies are winning over them. The walls are being torn down. God's blessing and protection on Israel has been fading. So they continue by saying, return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. A bunch of imperatives there. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. So this is a new metaphor. Israel is often seen as a son or a daughter or a child that God had raised up. The bridge continues. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. This is probably a reference to a king, to someone that they believe and hope God will raise up to make them flourish again, to lead them back. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us. And this is actually not an imperative. Um, It's a future-looking verb, so it could probably better be translated. Then you will not turn away from us, or, or we will not turn away from you. You will revive us or bring us back to life, and we will call on your name. And then they close one final time with the chorus. Restore us, Yahweh, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Now, let me just point out a few important qualities of this psalm. There's a bunch of qualities I could point out, but just for our purposes, um, the first is you can see the clear song structure, right? You don't always see this in all the psalms. It's not always that obvious, but here it's pretty obvious. This was a song. Here's the tune that it's played to. Here's verse one, chorus, verse two, chorus, bridge, extension, final wrap up with the chorus. This is clear that this was a song, and so we can't Forget that. They're not just words on a page. This was something that was sung over and over and over. You also see that the song is full of complaint and lament. People aren't afraid to tell God how bad things are, how unfair it all seems, how it almost seems like God is ignoring them. You see, lament always includes these words, why and how long. Why? And how long? And we see that in this song and in this prayer, it's okay to ask those questions. It's okay to voice those things. It's okay to plead with God. It's okay to take your doubts and your questions and your complaints and your laments to him. But here's another quality of this psalm. I've already mentioned it. It's the heavy use of the imperative. 14 times in this one song. Hear, shine forth, awaken, come, restore, make shine, restore, make shine, return, look, see, watch, restore, make 
shine. You see, in their questions of why and how long, the people probably know deep in their hearts they may never get great answers to those questions. But they also know that they can turn around and they can call out to God and plead with him to do something about it. They can plead with him to act. They can plead with him to hear them, to see them, to restore them, to return to them that they might experience the salvation or the deliverance or the rescue that they so long for and need. And so let me... Pause here for just a second before we look at one final quality. Because I want to just look at those three. Maybe the first one, maybe you don't really love singing songs, (laughs) right? Maybe you're not very musical. Maybe you don't have a great voice. Maybe you're someone who comes to church and the singing part is okay, but you just assume skip it. It's not that big of a deal. But now you see why we sing songs. Now you see why songs are so Important. Now you see why for thousands of years, it's one of the primary ways that people have come together to voice their emotions and to call out to God together just through songs. Or maybe you're here today and you feel like complaining to God or lamenting to him is a bit disrespectful, right? Or, or maybe it's just not even worth his time. He doesn't really care about my complaints. But the pattern of this psalm and the pattern of so many is that it's a healthy practice to bring your complaints and your laments to God. It's a good practice. In fact, he's really the only one we can legitimately come to and say, why and how long? Because we always follow up those questions with our pleas. God, would you hear us? God, do you see us? God, would you return to us? Would you restore us? And maybe commanding God in that kind of way seems unnatural and it just doesn't seem like something we should do, but it was the pattern and practice of the Hebrew people for a thousand years. It was also the practice of Jesus himself who pleaded with his father on many occasions in prayer, and it should be the practice of us as well. But there's one more really important quality of this song that I want to point out. The song is a communal prayer. And that's really important. It's not an individual prayer. Uh, It's a communal prayer. It's not an individual complaint. It's a communal complaint. It's not an individual lament. It's a communal lament. It's not an individual confession to God and a call for him to do something. It's a communal, collective, corporate confession to God and a call for him to restore us, not me, to make his face shine on us, not me, to return to us, not me, that not I would be saved, but that we would be saved. And so today, I just want to lead us in some time of following in this practice and saying, maybe we need to communally pray more together, as this song teaches us to do. 
uh, since the time of the early church, um, early followers of Jesus gathered, and whenever they gathered from the second or third century on, they would often sing songs together in this pattern. They would open the scriptures, and someone would often try to teach or help them understand what they meant, and they would always pray together. And one of the traditions that began early in the church, and it's still carried on today in many Catholic or Orthodox or more liturgical churches, is that prayers would be offered on behalf of the community, oftentimes by a leader, but at the end of that prayer, the leader would say, let us pray to the Lord. And the community would respond with, Lord, have mercy. In Greek, it's the words, kiri eliason, Lord, have mercy. Sometimes they would just chant or say over and over and over, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Those are imperatives. We need your mercy. Please show us your mercy. Give us your mercy. Provide your mercy. Demonstrate your mercy. Have mercy on us. And so this morning, I want to just take a few minutes to do that, to offer some prayers about the things that we lament. There's many things that have happened in our, pers- in our, our personal lives and in our own community. I've heard your prayers in the past weeks and months about things going on in your lives. There's things we lament in our lives. There's things we lament in our community. And there's even things we lament in the world around us. And so I want to take a few minutes to pray for those things. And whenever I then say, let us pray to the Lord, would you respond with those simple words, Lord, have mercy? Let's take a couple of minutes to do that. And if you wanna just close your eyes now, you can. Um, people pray in different ways. If, um, if you wanna open your hands, sometimes people do that as a posture of surrender. Posture matters. Sometimes people kneel on the ground as a way of sort of coming before God and bringing their complaints or their laments to him. So let me pray for us. Lord, we bring our joy and our sadness to you this morning. We bring our best selves and we bring our worst selves. And we bring our need for Jesus. Let us pray to the Lord. We also bring our questions to you, God. Why, Lord, must we face hardship in our lives? Do you bring this hardship? With Asaph, we ask, are you angry with us? Help us to remember we're your sons and your daughters, that you're ever with us and ever for us. Let us pray to the Lord. Why, Lord, must illness and death have its way, even in our own community? Do you not see the baby who never breathed? The father who suddenly died? The illness that could have been stopped? Could you not change the curse of pain and loss in our lives? How long, O Lord, until death no longer stings. Let us pray to the Lord. And why, Lord, must broken marriage vows 
cut like a knife. How can one wedded body break into pieces? We've all failed at being pure and faithful in our relationships. Only by your grace can we keep vows to one another. And so let us pray to the Lord. And why, Lord, must we experience instability, unemployment, loneliness, depression? Why do so many in Colorado try to end their pain by ending their lives? Where are you in the wilderness of our wandering? Do you hear us? Do you see us? Can you save us? Let us pray to the Lord. Why, Lord, is there such racism and hatred in our country right now? And why is it so hard for us, your followers, to present a different way? When we exclude, dehumanize, mock, marginalize others, we no longer represent your light in our world. How long will you put up with that before you remove our lampstand? Let us pray to the Lord. And why, Lord, does religion, power, and abuse of women and children often go together? When will justice come for victims of abuse? We confess that we in the church have often turned a blind eye. Let us pray to the Lord. And why, Lord, do we so easily worship rival gods? Money, alcohol, success, sexual fantasy, our own image or reputation, our work, our egos, our busyness. We, your followers, are no less addicted to these things than our neighbors. How long will you offer a better way to those who just keep rejecting it? Let us pray to the Lord. And why, Lord, must evil seem so often to get its way in our world? We confess our own sin is deeply shameful, but others are openly scornful for you. They mock your name, they laugh at our dismay. In the face of that, we need your patience and we need your hope. Let us pray to the Lord. And finally, why Lord do so many still not believe in your son and the life that he gave for all of us? We confess our failure to tell others of your good news and we confess our failure to love others and show them your good news. Save us from our unwillingness, our fears, our doubts, our apathy. Let us pray to the Lord.